0: We are at the CU Sports Medicine and Performance Center. Fantastic guest today, Doctor Enigo Milan Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for
1: having me. I oh, really appreciate honor. you taking you. the time. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Now, you were Alberto Contador's coach back when he did his no. first Tour de France, correct?
1: No, not not really. I mean, he he uh, he was part of our team when I was working uh, as a physiologist working for the uh, ONSI team, and when he turned amateur. He uh, came to our team, and mm-hmm. uh, that's where like the first time I met him. And uh, so yeah, I, you know, we were starting do all the physiological testing and uh, helping him also with uh, with, the, with the training as well. How yeah. did you
0: get into this field? What was your interest?
1: Well, I, I used to be a cyclist myself, so I, I have you race. look like it? Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know now, but I was much skinnier before. But yeah, I used to be a cyclist, and I, I, I raced for I don't know, like twelve years or so. And uh, I raced two years professionally at a local level. I was never the top one at all, so I'm a frustrated cyclist. And uh, but yeah, I was just very uh, cycling was my passion. And before being a cyclist, I was a soccer player. I, I played six years for Real Madrid in the developmental categories. Oh, yeah. So I, you know, uh, sports has been always my passion, and I've been be, I've been I've been in the in the high competition level. You know, since I was seven, you know. So all my life I've been in the high performance. So that's where, hey, why not making a career out of this afterwards? So, yeah.
0: And how did you get in though to physiology specifically? Yeah. And I mean, you got your PhD, so yeah, doing well, obviously a lot yeah. of work.
1: Well, I mean, I always was fascinated about how the body works and the, the, the physiological responses. And when I was 14, I was already reading physiology books and uh, have had already a heart rate monitor and I would use it all the time and write down the logs, you know, of what my heart rate was in the morning and, uh, you know, and at night and training. And so I was very fascinated. I, I, I think I bought probably the first heart rate monitor in Spain, <laughs> where I'm from. Uh, so, but yeah, I was very fascinated by that. I said, hey, you know, I really would love to do this more uh, at a formal level, you know, college, university, and, uh, and eventually just, you know, apply. New knowledge that I could be acquiring, you know? Because one thing that I've seen all these years when I was a, an athlete is like that 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 we were still in the infant in our infancy of the the, the, the scientific apl- applications to the sport, you know. So that's why I, I I was very passionate about it, and I said, hey, let's let's try to acquire more knowledge that we can go back and apply, you know, for to others.
0: How did you get involved with the CU Sports Medicine mm-hmm. Performance Center? Yeah,
1: so yeah, that's a good question. So uh, through uh, through a common friend, I contacted Dr. John Hill. Uh, he is the uh, sports medicine uh, fellowship director, and he's pretty much the, the, the person who founded, started CU Sports Medicine uh, a long time ago. And uh, so, yeah, and he talk- and so they were looking for a position, and I was in Spain. And uh, so I contacted him, and, hey, you know, I, I might be looking into maybe going to the U.S., and if you have something or so, and I, yeah, we are just looking for a position, so things went very smooth, you know. So uh, then in a few months I was here.
0: (laughs) What are your main duties here? You actually Uh do a lot of very interesting (laughs) work that I want to get into. Um, But (laughs) what are your duties uh, specifically at CU Sportsman? uh,
1: So I am the the director of the the sports performance program, right? And that's where we have uh, all the different areas and disciplines from gait analysis to physiology, uh, we do uh, bike fit, obviously. Uh, we do um, uh, uh, monitor for our training. We do blood analysis. We do nutrition, and uh, so what I've been doing over the years is been putting together and assembling programs, sports performance programs for teams and athletes, and that's what I uh, I think that's what I think I'm I've been good at, you know, trying to put together different programs and and, and teaming up with others, right? So we can uh, tackle all the different disciplines. So, so with this major project uh, through uh, what uh, Dr. Andy Prout founded, right, at BCSM twenty years ago, he was a pioneer and a visionary in this, and uh, that's he, he's the one who started the fire, right? And uh, now with us also coming into play and and both of us merging, right? This is a big team now that we have a big center. So, so yeah, we needed to put together pieces, you know. So I'm very. I'm very excited about working here.
0: Do you generally work strictly with elite athletes Mm -hmm. or will you work with anyone?
1: Oh, we we work with anybody. We open the doors uh, to everybody from uh, the recreational athlete to uh, the the elite athlete to the person with type two diabetes who needs an exercise prescription program, for example, right? So we work with everybody. And and, and one thing that, because we are also university and I'm a professor at the the School of Medicine, people might identify as more, which is, oh, we just do research. And uh, therefore, I don't qualify as a, as a subject, right? But no, I mean, that the, the main purpose of this center is to open the doors to the entire community so we can work with them, we can engage in the community, and we can give them services across the board from MRIs, physical therapy, primary care sports medicine, physiology, biomechanics. Now, you've
0: done so much. I really am looking at this episode mm-hmm. as an introduction of you. Uh, but then as we progress here, I really want to get into... Um, a lot of your specialties in detail, and you mentioned diabetes. Can you tell us some mm-hmm. of what you've done working with yeah. diabetic patients?
1: Yeah, well, so I've been working with uh, both type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. So, for example, with type 1, uh, I, I'm part of the, the JDRF, the Juvenile Diabetes Research Association. is the largest foundation in the world for diabetes. And uh, so they they put together, through a grant from Novo Nordisk, they put together a uh a diabetes and exercise program because uh, type one diabetics they were told not to exercise historically and now they're told to exercise now the problem they they're actually they have these funky reactions and they have these this very weird uh, uh, abnormalities in terms of glucose management and hormones and that's where like uh, we, we 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 didn't know how, how to prescribe exercise you know and these people would go back to their doctors and hey this is what happened to me and nobody had an answer so that's why the JDRF put together this program uh, and we're a panel of 20 experts from around the world and we come together and just try to brainstorm and we have created new guidelines for type 1 diabetes and exercise. And hopefully we'll be one of the first centers offering those. Uh, that's from type 1. And in type 2, uh, one of the main uh, uh, problems behind the pathogenesis of type 2 diabetes, right? The origin of the disease is a mitochondrial dysfunction. Mitochondria are inside of every cell pretty much. And mitochondria, that's the place where we burn the glucose, the fats, and the carbohydrates. That's where we produce ATP or energy, right? So when the mitochondria are dysfunctional, you cannot burn glucose. And when you don't burn glucose, then the, the, the body starts releasing more insulin, right? Because insulin gets the glucose inside the cell, and uh, eventually, it, 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 the body becomes re- insulin resistant, which is the first step towards type 2 diabetes, right? So the pathogenesis of type 2 diabetes starts at a mitochondrial dysfunction, and that's what I've been focusing on. Uh, I have developed a, a method to, that I just presented in Berlin, Germany, uh, two weeks ago, a method to to be able to um, uh, measure mitochondrial function in, uh, in, 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 in patients uh, with type 2 diabetes as well, for example. So we can see who has a high risk of type 2 diabetes, and also to be able to give them the right uh, exercise prescription because we know that the only way known to increase mitochondrial function is exercise or physical activity. That's the only way. Uh, And that's why, you know, but it has to be very well, very individualized, you know. Uh, So that's what we can see here. First, how your mitochondria are working, and therefore we can give you the right Exercise prescription intensity so that you can carry on for many years, as opposed to what happens to many people that they don't, uh, there's no sustainability, right? When it comes to exercise, they give up because it's too hard or too little or they, they don't have uh, all that ad- adherence, you know. Now, you're
0: very involved with Team Type
1: 2, correct? I was working with Tip Time 1, which is Team No. Nordics, okay. Yes, yeah. And it's been part of the project of acquiring a lot of uh, data and as much knowledge as possible so we can transfer that to anybody with type 1 diabetes. So you're really using the cycling team. Exactly, exactly. yeah. So we acquired tons of data and and, and we got a lot of responses now, uh, a lot of answers, I'm sorry, to many questions. And that's been part of also these guidelines for type 1 diabetes and exercise. And and the focus of this is to train clinicians on how to prescribe exercise, you know, or how to tell them that, how to face that, or or how to educate patients with type 1 diabetes who are prescribed exercise or told to exercise.
0: Now, before we started recording, you gave me some pretty sobering statistics. And again, I don't want to get too far into this. Where does the U.S. rank worldwide mm-hmm. uh, with people with diabetes?
1: Well, it's probably right now the, the, the place, you know, where more cases of type to diabetes, right? Uh, however, you know, the rest of the world is working hard at beating us, you know, because everybody is getting increased, uh, in, you know. So right now... Uh, Not a
0: competition to win,
1: no, I, but it seems like, right, because everybody's getting worse and worse or better in year. So, yeah, but the whole thing is that, yeah, the U.S., we have a big problem with that. It's, uh, it's, uh, so it's calculated. There are several studies out there. One says that by year 2020, which is tomorrow, about 50% of the U.S. adult population is going to be either pre-diabetic or diabetic. Uh, by uh, year 2050, there's another prediction that about one-third of the U.S. population is going to be diabetic, you know, so that's, uh, that's, oof, those numbers are going to be very difficult to, uh, to tackle because uh, it's not just the diabetes, but uh, about 80% of people with type 2 diabetes also develop cardiovascular disease. In fact, now the two diseases along with metabolic syndrome, they're more called into the, what's called cardiometabolic disease, right? So that's going to spike tremendously, the cases. And we we'll already see cardiovascular disease as the top killer in our society, Uh, We also see that about 60, I mean, people with type 2 diabetes, they have about 65% chances, more chances of developing Alzheimer's. 65%. Yes. There's a very high correlation between, uh, and and, 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 and there's more and more research coming out in this area, but there's a good correlation between Alzheimer's and type 2 diabetes. And in fact, it's very possible that uh, Alzheimer's might be a new type of diabetes because it has the same features. Pretty much, there's insulin resistance, there's the mitochondrial dysfunction, so the, for the, the, which are the same uh, uh, pathogenesis of type two diabetes, and, and some some researchers are already calling it type three diabetes. So Alzheimer's. it's very uh, Alzheimer's disease. Yes.
0: We are at the mm-hmm. University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center, visiting with Dr. Enigo San Can you tell us a little bit about a device that you've worked with called Muscle? sound. <laughs> I think I got that right. Yeah, yeah. So
1: it's, it's, that's a device that uh, it's funny. So uh, Dr. John Hill, I mentioned earlier, he's, he's, the, he's the guy who brought me here to the US. So, uh, you know, the two of us were brainstorming one day, hey, how about we could try to measure uh, glycogen content? Because that, that's an idea that we've been always having. And, and he's an expert in skeletal muscle ultrasound. So we started to play around. And we, yeah, we developed a methodology, we patented it, to look at, and we founded a company uh, where we could uh, look at glycogen content in a non-invasive way, with a, f- with the ultrasound. So we scan the muscles, and in about 15 seconds, we have a, a score, and that's the, the the amount of glycogen that someone has. So in in, in other words, a gly- non-invasive, non-invasive, just scan it, you know, with the ultrasound, like what you do. What what where like when people go and pregnant uh, women, and they get like a, a ultrasound, and they look at the baby, the same the same machine. So, yeah, and we validated it because the only way until now was to do a muscle biopsy where you just get a chunk of muscle, literally, and look at glycogen content, which obviously it's incredibly aggressive, invasive, and it's not, not practical, right? But we see that because of the, you know, uh, it's important. What we see that we have now a our, our gasoline uh, gas tank indicator, uh-huh. right? It tells you how much gasoline you have in the tank because glycogen is probably the most important uh, I mean, carbohydrates are probably the most important f- uh, source of fuel in the body for athletes, right? And uh, they're stored in the form of carbo- of glycogen, right? So by measuring glycogen, we can measure the amount of carbohydrates stored. And from that, now we can see, we can dial in the nutrition better. Uh, there are many athletes, they think they need to uh, eat more carbohydrates, others they need to eat less carbohydrates, but we don't really know, right? Uh, so that's what now we know. We can look at the muscle, because uh, that's where we store glycogen. Eighty-five percent of the glycogen is stored in the muscle. Fifteen is in the liver. But that's where now we can scan the muscle and say, "Whoa, yes, you're right. You you don't need to eat more carbohydrates because your storage are full. And therefore, if you have more carbohydrates, you're going to turn them into fat, right? Or no, you're you're wrong. You know, you really need to have more carbohydrates because that's that's very important because uh, they're very important for performance as well. And, um, and I'm and,
0: thinking of you out, say, with the football team here. Yes, someone's having cramps or yeah. anything like that. Can you use this? And in- yeah, we
1: we do it with football, like uh, about three times a week, right? We, uh, you know, I scan the muscles of the football players as well as uh, track and field, uh, cross country runners, uh, basketball players as well, soccer players, and we individualize uh, nutrition a lot based on this, and also we individualize. Uh, workouts you know if someone sometimes it's not about eating more it's about trying to train less because sometimes someone may might be training too much and maybe not recovering enough so therefore they cannot uh store enough carbohydrates you know uh, therefore they need to lower a little bit the training and uh, so we can we can individualize the workout the workload a lot
0: yeah, I'm laughing right now. <laughs> no, not at what you're saying. I just remember when my older brother played high school football uh-huh. and the coaches telling them, "No, you cannot drink water. Yeah. And I want you to take these salt tablets." <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, a lot of same <laughs> like changed. we've come a long way. Yeah, yeah. And now with this methodology, we we have taken it to the to the ICU with patients. So I've been having the hint that uh, ICU patients that were not having enough uh, nutrition, and that's something that has is, is been, is been suspected for many years of, in those people working with ICU patients, critically ill patients. So yeah, so as soon as we validated the methodology and we published it, uh, we went to the ICU, and effectively we saw that ICU patients, critically ill patients, they have no glycogen. It's incredible, and, uh, and and that's one of the main, or, or could be one of the main problems for, or impediments for survival. They don't have enough energy, and uh, so that's uh, and I've, we presented this uh, all this data at the, in Brussels uh, last year at the international conference for critical care, and it was very well received. And we really think now that all the uh, all the all the protocols for nutrition and therapeutics at the uh, ER at the ICU need to be revisited because of this data. So they're they not eating enough, you know, but it hasn't been documented. So now we know that there's no gasoline in the tank in this patient, so it's very difficult for them to recover. And one of the things that happens at ICU is that, like, the best BMI to survive, body mass index, is 31, which is pretty much closer, like a, closer to obesity, you know? It hasn't been explained why. And now we think, it's, you know, why is the reason? Maybe the, maybe the reason is because you bring the f- your food to the table, to the hospital. You are your own food. Because when you run out of glycogen and you still need to thrive, whether it's like doing a marathon or fighting for survival, you need energy, right? And, and, and therefore, that way I have
0: my fat that I uh-huh. would be eating in that.
1: State. Yeah, but but you, you eat a lot more, more muscle mass, you know? Uh-huh. So, yeah, because then you tap on the muscle mass because the muscle mass can be broken down and be transformed into glucose. And that's what they did. The typical condition of ICU patients, they have what's called hypermetabolism. Their metabolic rate is off the chart. And the glucose utilization for repair is off the chart. They really need to use a lot of glucose to repair. And that glucose, when the glycogen is gone, comes from the muscle. So the muscle starts eating itself to feed itself. And eventually, that's why the typical thing that happens in so many patients at ICU is called cachexia, muscle waste. They lose a lot of muscle and that's because the muscle, yeah, you eat it, you know, the muscles eat itself to feed itself.
0: I'm just imagining an athlete on the uh, trainer having a VO2 max test Mm -hmm. or whatever. This is something you can bring in and also get Mm -hmm. a very valuable measurement. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And yeah, and yeah, and and in fact, yeah, we we work with nutrition a lot too, because many athletes, yeah, they they don't know how to dial in the nutrition. And again, they might think they might eat it more or less and And that's what we we can dial it in.
0: So I know you see a number of athletes, Mm -hmm. and you said not just of the uh, elite level. Mm -hmm. Can people make an appointment to come see you here?
1: Yeah, anybody can make an appointment. Uh, And and in fact, that's, again, we're open to everybody out there. Uh, One... major area that we really want to work with is the recreational athletes, right? Recreational athletes, uh, historically, they were just recreational. They would just run around the block, you know, or were the dogs, you know. But a big number of those, they have, uh, they have, they have become now uh, competitive athletes, right? And they train with a purpose, and they want to be the fastest in their category, in the age group, right? Or they want to be the best in their clubs or the best in the neighborhood, right? And, uh, and and they have like a 10 hour day, uh, 10 hours per day jobs, right? And they have families, you know, and they're not professional per se, but they're highly competitive. The thing that we see is the majority of they have they don't know how to eat, they don't know how to train. They get overtrained, they have fatigue and affects their performance at work, performance with, with 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 life. And that's one of the things that um uh, it's just, we, we can really help a lot of those and give them guidance, you know? Because, yeah, they, they, at the end of the day, they also buy the most expensive equipment. They have the same bikes or as a professionals or the same running shoes or they want the, the best equipment. So, But when it comes to the fundamentals, right, which is training and nutrition and recovery, Many of them, they have no clue. So that's where we really want to engage them, you know, and, and help them. Be a, be a place where we can help them, also with coaches. Our, our place is not a place where we coach necessarily. We 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 really want to work, work with coaches. We for individuals who come, definitely we can give them all kinds of training advice. But I know that there are so many athletes, recreationals, that are working with coaches, right? So we really want to work with coaches as well. We want coaches to to. To be kind of affiliated to our center, right? Their center is—it's—it's it's part of of their uh, service, right? And because with the facilities that we have, it will be a sin just to 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 offer this to a, a very limited amount of athletes, right?
0: What are you noticing in some of your research as? The athletic population, a large portion of us, are mm-hmm. aging. Uh, yeah. A lot of people in their fifties who are very competitive, sixties yeah. very competitive. Yeah, what are, are are you
1: finding out some some new information with that population? Well, uh, I mean, I think overall it's absolutely great, right? And uh, that the, we see this. Um, one thing that we might be seeing in the we're probably already seeing is that our society, especially in areas like Colorado is going to be very polarized. We're going to see people that are incredibly fit, right, in the 60s, right, at the, the same fitness level of so many people were in the, in the 20s. And on the other hand, we're going to see a lot of people that are very uh, unfit, you know. so a very polarized society with both extremes, right? But I think that overall, uh, it's great that people are engaged in exercise is, is the best medicine. One of the programs that we're promoting here is the exercise is medicine. It's a program that the American College of Sports Medicine and the American Medical Association launched together seven years ago for clinicians to prescribe exercise, right, to promote exercise. And there's going to be now a tsunami of studies out there where exercise is as good as medication for the majority of the chronic diseases, as good uh, not for prevention, which obviously we know, but for treatment. You know, so it's going to be in the next year at tsunami of status and that's more and more patients are going to be prescribed exercise, you know, uh, and that's where we really think that, yeah, people who are in their 60s so active and so uh, mentally bright, too, right, is because the exercise, right? Whereas if you don't exercise, you're going to have a lot of problems.
0: Well, we have much more to t- chat with you about uh-huh. and I look forward to having you as a fairly regular guest on okay. this show. Well, thank you very much, George. Looking forward to it. Dr. Inigo San Milan at the CU Sports Medicine and Performance Center, Boulder, Colorado. I'm George Thomas.